Okay, uh, it's probably been about 12 years since you folks have seen an update. So what I plan to do, what I hope to do if things work, is show you some faces that you might never seen before, people that you've prayed for, uh, people that pray for you. Uh, some of their names have been mentioned in, in email updates and others may be new. I'm only, let me preface this by saying that uh, these photos were taken, most of these photos were taken with a, oh, well, I didn't know all that, all that was up. <laughs> most of these photos were taken with a uh, cell phone. So there might be some low quality photos. I apologize for that. Uh, I just hope that uh, we're able to get this moving in the right direction and uh, be able to explain some things. There's a lot. The first time I, I did this presentation, it took about 45 minutes. I've since fine-tuned it some so that it won't take that long. Cool. Okay. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, I truly thank you for the opportunity to be here this evening with these dear folks, sharing uh, what you're doing there in Panama in spite of me. Lord, I praise you for your miraculous transforming power in our lives and in any life, in any man or woman or child that would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in salvation. So, Lord, I pray that you would guide us this day, that you would grant unto us understanding, uh, a new perspective of the ministry that you're doing in Panama. Lord, and burden our hearts to pray that that would continue for your honor and glory. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, to give you a, a brief, uh, there are some new faces in Grace Church of Mentor that might not know me. I, I thank Pastor Steve for those very kind words. Uh, it's quite humbling to, to think that he would uh, say those things. Uh, anyway, I was a firefighter paramedic by trade until uh, the Lord sowed the seed in my heart to go to Panama and be a missionary. I went there in 1996 with some folks from this church. Blaine was on that trip. Jim Coakley was on that trip. And there were several others that aren't here that were on that trip. And it was in that trip that the Lord planted the seed to go back and be a church planter there in Panama. Uh, I was very content being a firefighter. I planned to retire, be chief one day and retire and have a great pension. And, and the Lord changed all that around. I was... Uh, 42 years old when I went to the mission field as a career of missionary. So uh, what does the Lord require? A willing heart. That's all. A willing heart. And uh, I praise the Lord for doing that work in me. Uh, I, I was in a struggle of, is this really the Lord's will? And how do I know that I'm just not moving on emotion? Because I had a blast when I went there. We mixed up concrete, and we, we mucked around in Spanish, and uh, it was just a, a wonderful time for me. And the pastor even said at that point, 
don't worry, when you come home, you'll feel called to the ministry. He said, that'll pass. Well, it didn't pass. And a month went by, and two months went by, and I talked to the pastor, and I said, you know, I still got this Panama thing going in my mind. He says, well, brother, just pray. So I continued to pray. And I continued to passively talk to my wife about it, who was not on board in the beginning. And, uh, well, three months, six months, Panama, Panama, Panama. Went back to the pastor, and the pastor said, this is when I was attending a different church. Maybe the Lord's calling you to be a missionary in Panama. What do I do? He said, well, you need to pray. <laughs> I had to pray more. Then I got here. Uh, this is the condensed version. Got here and uh, got under the, the shepherding ministry of Pastor Potter Sr. and Pastor Tim. Uh, and they directed me, and they said, well, you need to work on your education. So I was in the Bible Institute. I took every course, every class that the Bible Institute offered, and after four and a half years, graduated, was ordained, and then January of 2000, 2002, we went to the mission field. During that time, there was a separation. Pastor Potter said, Mark, if you can see yourself doing anything other than being a missionary, you're not called to be a missionary. And let me tell you, folks, I loved being a firefighter. That was my dream job. I loved it. But then as I started just studying the scriptures and, and the Lord started developing in my heart this desire to preach the gospel in a foreign land, that desire to be a firefighter just sort of started waning while the other one started increasing. And uh, God sovereignly orchestrated events and, and finances and people. And, and my wife came on board, and that's her testimony. I'll let her share that with you one day. And we arrived on the mission field. You know, Luke was 16, Caleb was 14, Hope was 12, Hannah was 10. Those guys never complained once. Never complained once. And I uprooted them from their friends and from their school and, well, we were homeschooled, from their church, from their family, from what was normal, and we took them and put them in what was very not normal for us, where we were the minority, where they were speaking a different language, and there was different smells, and there were different circumstances, and, and different conditions. Never complained once. I complained. <laughs> I belly ached. Carol had her sense of belly aching, but the Lord was good. He always provided. He led us along. And Okay. That's a condensed version of the testimony. I, I'm going to share to you, share with you this evening just some, uh, <laughs> hey, it works. That's cool. Okay. We're in Panama. So Panama is not South America, as many of you might think. Panama is Central America. And the Panamanians are, guess what? Americans. So I have to say, when I distinguish myself from them, I'm a North American because they're Central Americans. So Panama is right there on the tip of Colombia, and to the north, it's Costa Rica. Okay, Panama is probably known for the Panama Canal. Uh, 
It's also known for Panamanian hats and bananas and pineapples and it's not the banana capital of the world because that's in Ecuador, but it's almost the banana capital of the world, okay? So we'll call it the almost capital, banana capital of the world. So Panama has two bridges now that cross the canal on the Pacific side because that's where we are. It's the, the one on the left is the Bridge of the Americas and the one on the right there is the newer bridge that was finished, I believe, in 2005. It's the Centennial Bridge. And those are the only two access points over the canal uh, on the Pacific side. So when those bridges go down by a, a car accident or something, there's nothing but chaos because people can't cross the bridge. And there's always, 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 always traffic in Panama. Knock out a bridge and you could imagine what that's like. So there they are. We, in our, when we first moved in Panama, moved to Panama, this is the administration building of the Panama Canal and we lived right over there. We were really close. Okay, I'm spending too much time on this stuff. I have to hustle. The country of Panama. It's like most countries. It's, it has its cities and its developed cities and it also has its underdeveloped interior uh, which is where we began to minister. It wasn't uncommon to see cattle in the road there in Panama. And, uh, this, is, this is downtown. This would be uh, Panama Central. Uh, this is your typical street in, in downtown Panama. Again, that's not traffic. And this, Panama has two seasons. It has the wet season and the dry season. Right now it's the wet season and it's not uncommon to have flooded streets. That's just because they have volumes and volumes of rain and that too plays in havoc with the traffic. But that's a, a common sight on a, in any Panamanian street on any given day during the wet season, okay? They have their open markets and these are always fun to go and visit and talk to the people. Uh, there's a lot of activity on the streets in Panama. Okay, so our ministry is on the Pacific side this side, this is the Atlantic side. Our ministry is on the Pacific side of Panama in a little town, well, it's not a little town, it's, a, it's an area called La Chorrera. That's where we minister. We've uh, visited other areas and that was the most logical place to begin the ministry after doing a couple survey trips. That's where we began. The people of Panama. The pe Panama is, has a, a, a good mix of, of, of people. I mean, there's the Chinese are there because the Chinese built the railroad, which was uh, key in building the canal. So there's a huge Chinese population there. And then you have your indigenous people. You have uh, Indian tribes. Panama does not have a, a military, like the United States would have a military. They have a military police force, okay? But they don't have a military as we would consider one. There's one of the Indian, uh, a woman from the Indian tribe. She would be of the Kuna tribe. We have a Kuna family in our church. You'll see that later. Uh, and they're just, over, in general, they're, they're kind people. They're kind, hospitable people. They're not like us here in the north. Uh, rude people that don't want anybody at our doors. When I, when I first started going door-to-door -door visitation there, everyone welcomed me. They gave me something to drink. They offered me something to eat, come into the house. 
Everyone wanted to start a Bible study. It wasn't, but it wasn't sincerity. Sincerity. But in general, they're kind. Okay. And of course, there's the children aspect there. Our history. I gave you some of that information before. In January of 2002, we arrived on the field. We began language training for one year. Panama, they speak Spanish. Uh, we began our ministry in Cerro Cama. We were there for two years, and we began learning the language and the culture under the, under the, guy, under the uh, uh, umbrella of another missionary who was there. In 2003, I began door-to-door -door ministry, and then that led into a Bible study. February 29th, it's not an error, it was leap day. Uh, we had our very first church service in a home. July of 2006, we purchased property and began construction of a building. December of 2006, we had our first service in that building. And then in March of 2008, we officially organized as a church with membership. And then in the next year, we had our first two deacons. Our goals. Well, the scripture says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Ghost, excuse me, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Amen. So our main goal, our main goal is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. If you were to ask me 15 years ago, Mark, what's your goal? It's to start a church. No, that's not the main goal. Back then it was, but I think my focus was a little bit skewed. Our main goal is to make disciples of Jesus Christ, not of Mark Mavar. Establish an independent, self-governing, self-supporting work. Equip the saints to do the ministry and teach them to reproduce themselves. It doesn't, it, it doesn't begin and end right there in that church. It's got to go beyond that, and you, you folks know that. Uh, the, all the pastors here and their emphasis on disciple-making and church planning that's the norm. So even on the mission field, it's not just, okay, I started a church and there it is and it's going by itself. No, that church needs to reach out and reproduce itself. Our ministries. We put an emphasis on discipleship by way of home Bible studies. Okay, this, this is not a home Bible study, but it is a home Bible study. There was nobody in the church that had a house large enough for the amount of people that were in this James study, so I decided to have it at church. It's also later in the day. I don't know if you can see the clock, but it's 9.05 p.m., and that's late for me. I'm normally in bed at like 8 o'clock, and this study was for the folks who, who work all day, who deal with that traffic and they can't get to Wednesday night church or they can't get to a Tuesday night or a Thursday night Bible study. So we decided to make it later on in the day at 8 o'clock, go for an hour, hour and a half, and that, that study started off with like 15 people. It was awesome. It was awesome. So everyone who couldn't be there on a Wednesday night service or one of those other studies came to this one, and that was the whole purpose of that study. Bible Institute classes. We started with my wife, Rodolfo and Erika. His wife, Rodolfo, is our deacon. And uh, now uh, we have seven students in Bible Institute. 
Men's meetings, Iron Sharper Nine. This is a blessing for me. I've always wanted to reach men. I went on the streets. I went door to door. If you go to door to door, you're not going to find men because their, their, their maid will answer the door. Their, their maid will deflect the, the gringo, and you don't get any, anything done there. I went to the streets to find men, and there were men there, but they weren't willing to talk. And I'm like, there's got to be some way to reach men. And the Lord just opened up this door. I don't know, brainstorming, I don't know. But I'm like, it started with our guys, and then I started reaching out to other churches of like mind. And a couple of them responded, and we started with a group of men. Uh, we meet once every six weeks, and it's the, the purpose is to prepare them to be godly leaders in their home, responsible workers in their workplace, and leaders in the church. And we have a, a mix of, of two different churches here. The guys, not on purpose, but the guys on the right are from our church, and the guys on the left would be from the, the pastor's church. Carol has her meetings right now in, in, in process. It's, uh, she translated or is translating Quieting a Noisy Soul by Jim Berg, and, and she normally has a good group of ladies that turn out for that, and she is shepherding and mentoring those ladies. One-on-one -on -one discipleship, and finally our church, Iglesia de la Gracia. There's a snapshot of just about everybody that, that comes on a, on a regular basis. Okay, there's Raquel. She was actually the first woman that I was able to lead to the Lord in Choreta, and a Bible study started in her home, and from that Bible study, the church was born. That Bible study, 13 years later, still exists. We still study in Raquel's home. Then there's Noelia with her husband, Ernesto, that comes every so once in a while. And then a blessing, Ugo, her oldest son. He made a profession of faith about two years ago after much prayer and, and tribulation in his life. And uh, he's just on fire wanting to serve the Lord. And then there's Migdalia on the right. Uh, Migdalia was like the second person that was added to that, that study. Caleb and I visited Migdalia and, and prayed for Migdalia to receive Christ as her Savior. And she's been a very faithful, hard worker in the church. Uh, one of our biggest outreaches is, is a Christmas concert. And Migdalia invited her two sons, two sons, daughters, those are ladies, her two daughters, Saskia and Kenelma, they came, and on that, and this wasn't the first time they came to a Christmas concert, they came, prayed, received Christ as their Savior, we immediately began discipleship with them. And uh, they're growing, and it's exciting to see what the Lord's doing in their life. Both of their husbands are unbelievers. Then there's our first deacon, Rodolfo. Uh, I don't have time to get into Rodolfo. Rodolfo's a, a, I'd like to have 10 Rodolfos. He's a servant. The man is a servant. He's not a leader. He's not a pastor teacher. But he's a humble, joyful servant. He serves. He he's a great deacon. I couldn't ask for a better deacon. And his wife, Erika, and Jonathan, their son. Uh, Stephanie is Rodolfo's daughter. And uh, Stephanie was disciplined out of the church for, for just some things. And she eventually came back and repented of her sin of her own accord. 
and she said that, you know, the, the, the turning point was when she came back to visit us, and everyone loved her and hugged on her, and she, she didn't get the stiff arm that she was expecting, and that was a turning point for her. She said, I want to come back. I want to repent. I want to get my, right, my life right. I want to teach my daughter. And so Stephanie's back and her little daughter, Jocelyn. And then this, this is the Kuna family that I was mentioning before. That's Ani Delis. We, say, we call her Ani with her daughter, Liuva, on the left, and Anna on the right. It's a real fun visit when I go and visit them. It's all three talking at the same time. Anna is a result of our, our, our website. Uh, her daughter found our website. Her daughter contacted me, told me to contact Anna. I was able to visit her and lead Anna to Christ, and she's been coming and growing. Uh, then there's Laura. Laura also is a result of our website because her son found our church on the website. He invited his mom, and Laura started coming. Laura, in turn, uh, invited her daughter, Cindy, who comes. Laura is a widow. Cindy's husband works for the canal, and he's, he's like always working, and so he can't come to church on a regular basis. Both of them are professing believers. Laura, in turn, invited her twin, daughter, her twin sister, Rosa. And so Rosa came. Enrique is a result of another outreach we did. We did sort of like a, a sweetheart banquet. It was first time ever. I told the people in October, I said, start praying for your spouses to come. Migdalia's like, because Martin isn't going to come to church. And Canelma was like, Jonathan's not going to come to church. I said, we start praying now in October because in February we're having our sweetheart banquet. I don't know what we called it back then, but it, it doesn't translate in Spanish. And, and Enrique came with Rosa, and Migdalia's husband came, and Canelma's husband came. And both of these women were like, whoa. I'm like, yes, amen. <laughs> so, so Enrique was a result of that. Uh, these guys have... Four kids, three kids. No, four kids, okay. And uh, Hilberto and Ingrid. And then this young man here, that's Joel. And her oldest, their oldest daughter, Mylene. Okay, I, I'm going to, I have to talk about this one because this one is really, really neat. They're all neat, but this one is really, really neat. Javier and Isabel. I run every morning. I normally pray and look for people to share the gospel with while I'm walking back. I'm coming home, and I run in. I see this guy probably. He's a quarter of a mile away. I'm like, okay, that's the guy. It was, just, it was just he and I on the street and nobody else. I'm like, this is perfect. So I'm already thinking, okay, how am I going to approach this? And then I see Javier flag the, the taxi down. I'm like, oh, man, Lord. And the taxi just drove right by, and I'm like, cool, there he is. He's still, I can still get him. <laughs> and uh, he comes up, and I strike up a conversation with him, and next thing you know, I'm sharing the gospel with him, and I invite him to come to church because he was living somewhat close to the church. I invite him to come to church, and I never see him again. There's hope. You know, I have expectation this Sunday, and then the following Sunday, I never see Javier again. And then as it turns out that his cousin lives in our neighborhood. And she asked me about the, the ball-headed guy, Javier. I'm like, oh, yeah, Javier. She said, well, that's my cousin. 
I'm like, well, ask him if I can have his phone number. So we get hooked up again. We meet a couple times at a restaurant, and I'm able to lead Javier to Christ. Javier starts coming to church. He invites Isabel, and Isabel comes. And, and, and at this point, I'm a little protective of Javier because they, were, they didn't have a good relationship. Actually, Isabel put a restraining order on, on Javier. <clears throat> so he invites her to come, and, and again, this is a condensed version. There's a lot of details in there. So I meet with Isabel in my office after the service, and I'm, I'm in my papa bear mode that I don't want this woman destroying Javier and, and just confusing him. And, and I'm like, so Isabel, how can, I, how can I help you? Why are you here? She said, uh, I want what Javier has. He's a different person. Isn't that cool? It, quote, unquote, I want what he has. I was able to uh, share the gospel with Isabel. She prayed to receive Christ, and she began to disciple with Carol. A gigantic blessing for me was to do that for them. They were both, Javier, I think, is 35, and Isabel is 34. They've been, never been married, and uh, they waited, and they got married. And I was able to officiate the service, and uh, what a blessing that was. The neat thing about Javier's conversion, he never, ever walked that street again. That was the first and only time that Javier walked on that street. He had a fight with, his, with, with Isabel. She dropped him off, and he had a, eh, it's probably about a two-mile walk to work. So he was going to be late, and he was frustrated. <laughs> it was almost like the Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch encounter in the desert that I had with Javier. Only Javier wasn't reading his Bible. Uh, I'm meeting one-on-one with Javier, discipling Javier, and uh, it's just cool. Javier and Isabel invited Alicia. Alicia is being discipled by Erica. We also have the Foundations books that uh, my wife translated in Spanish. She's working on the walk right now. Jose is a, is a guy that uh, he found us through our website. He came out and visited us. Jose travels an hour to come to church. And then there's this guy, Reyes. You folks, several years ago, might have been praying for Reyes. We had to discipline Reyes out of our church. And uh, he was, it was just Reyes and I for years, just two guys in the church, Reyes and I. And he made some bad decisions, and he didn't want to work with us, and we wound up disciplining out of the church. I reached out to him a couple times just to see if he wanted to get restored, and he just stiff-armed me. So one Sunday morning, I'm teaching Sunday school, and I look out the window, and I see this guy walking up the driveway with a baseball cap on, and, well, it's not uncommon because we're like a cut-through for the, 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 what's it called, the, the bar paintball slash party center behind the church. Did you guys prayed about that? But we since put a fence up so people can't pass through. Anyway, I see this guy walking up the driveway, and then he comes up on the, on the patio of the church, and I'm like, 
That's Reyes. And he's not coming this close just to pass through, I'm sure. So he comes and he does an airport loop. He, he walks past the door and does a big loop like that and just comes in. He lines himself up with the door and comes in. And everyone's like, <sighs> everyone. Because we didn't think that he would ever, come. I shouldn't say we, I didn't think that he would ever come back to church, ever. Comes in, sits down, and I'm like, I'm like, oh, I got to teach Sunday school. It's talking about repentance. How about that? And uh, I'm like, oh, no. I was elated to see him there. But I'm like, oh, no, I got to deal with this after church. So he comes, and Sunday school's over, and he walks outside. And I, I said hi to him, and I handed him a handout, and I went back in and got things ready. And he came back in, and we started service, and service was over. And he came up, and I'm like, oh, man. I'm not getting sweaty palms because everything's sweaty in Panama, so my hands are already sweaty. Uh, <laughs> so I went up to him. I went up to him, and I, and I said, uh, Reyes, he says, Pastor, can I talk to you for a moment? I'm like, yeah, come on, let's go. He wanted to talk to me. First thing he said, I want to thank you for the message. I needed to hear something like that. Next thing I want to say is, I sinned against you. Please forgive me. Isn't that cool? I, quote, unquote, I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. There he is. Restored. Restored. He talked to the, he talked to the, the church corporately. He admitted his, his sin. He asked for their forgiveness. And he said, and this is the other thing that shocked me. He says, I'm glad that the pastor was so hard with me like he was. Because that was right. I was wrong. And Reyes is restored. Reyes' son, Damian, he's, uh, he comes hit and miss. He's, uh, has, he has his hands full with uh, the university. And I'm hoping that sometime soon Damian's going to be able to finish the university. It seems like he's been in the university for eight years. I don't know, but... <laughs> And then there's our newest uh, attendee, Melva. She came as a result of, of Noelia's invite. Uh, Melva's having some marital issues, and I'm, I've been able to sit down and, and counsel her through some. And, and uh, Noelia and Raquel are, she made a profession of faith. Melva did. And uh, Noelia and Raquel are discipling her. So they're doing it. They're doing it. Okay, because this, this ministry is so neat, I just want to show you some pictures uh, of that ministry. Again, this is in a church in Veracruz, the other pastor that's like-minded that wants to participate in this. Uh, it's just a meeting we had there. Then we had a meeting in our home uh, right... No, it wasn't right before. It's just the first meeting we had of Hombres de Hierro in our home. Uh, there's a group of everybody, and look at that little guy next to me. That's Reyes. He came, and he's smiling. Go figure. 
And this was the last meeting we had before we, uh, I came back to the States. It was, it was Father's Day. It was the Saturday before Father's Day, and we had a good group of guys there again. This is the pastor of that church, Pastor Dario, and he's a neat guy. He's a Kuna Indian, and he's, he's in charge of that work. He's actually stepping in for me in, in, in Iglesia de la Gracia while I'm here. So uh, that's neat. Our needs. We need a qualified and gifted man to be mentored and eventually take over and lead the flock. They need their own pastor. They don't need a guy like me as their pastor. They need their own pastor, and we've been praying for that. Please, please, please pray for that man. We need a willingness of the people to finish what they started. Oftentimes we'll start a ministry, we'll, we, they'll start a, a, a Bible study, we'll start with 15, we'll finish with three. They need to see it through to the end. We need people to step up and lead, and that's actually happening now, so that's good. Maybe I can scratch that off the list. And actually what we need is revival. We, we, have, we have just, just like here, we have apathetic complacent believers that are satisfied to just sit in a chair and listen and not do and not grow and not sacrifice and not extend themselves. That doesn't work. That's salt without savor. And we know salt without savor is good for nothing. So, Please pray for Iglesia de la Gracia. Would there be any questions? Yes, sir. If everyone comes, there's probably around 25 to 30 people, and there's not a lot of children. There was one point where we had more children than, than adults. And that's not like that anymore. There's very few children, and maybe a handful of that many of children. Most of them are adults, and of that group, most of them are women. They're uh, ladies who've made professions who hus whose husbands don't come. Then, then there's Jose who doesn't have a wife, and he comes. And so we only have, uh, there's, well, praise the Lord, there's probably about five or six men, but the majority of the church is women. Okay. They say that, that uh, the, the religion of Panama is, the, is Catholicism, but everyone's there. The Mormons are there, the Jehovah's Witnesses are there, the, the Buddhists are there, the Muslims are there. Uh, it's a very churched country. So, uh, but I think the, the the group that causes more havoc in Panama would be the Pentecostal church because Panamanians are very emotional folks. And if you play with their emotions, you could get them to come. And the, the Pentecostal churches, they're, they're big. They're big because there's, there's music, there's miracles, there's emotion, and... And it's, it's all hoopla and very little doctrine. And uh, that is probably the, the group that causes the most confusion or havoc in the country, in my opinion. Good question. Someone else?
Yes, sir. Seth. What's the government's view of churches in general? I mean, you're allowed to worship openly and freely, go to work. Yep. Yeah, no, no restrictions whatsoever. Uh, they're, they're very open. You figure the Mormon missionaries come every two years, and the doors are wide open to them. So there's, they, they place no restrictions on you. Uh, so in that sense, it's good. I've been praying that the, that the government, not go, the government, that God would close the doors of the country to those false teachers because... Uh, they're really causing confusion in the country. Yes, sir. The question was: the question is, what is crime like? Do I worry about it? Uh, we're in a red light district where the church is. The the sports bar right behind the church is, is owned and run by ex-felons. And because we're only there three times a week, we don't really know what's going on all the time, but we hear that there's shootings and muggings. and So that's there. People, there's a lot of people that carry guns in Panama, and there's a lot of gang activity Albeit I don't see it, I just see the effects of it when it's already taken place. And uh, that's a little discouraging. Do I fear? No, I, I, I don't fear it. It's the, the, Lord, the Lord's in control of all that. Uh, I try to be a wise pastor and, and protect the flock. Uh, but other than that, uh, it's the same crime that, that, that exists everywhere the crime of the unregenerate heart. Someone else? Gail. Where is your residence in, in relationship to where the church is at? Our, tr our house is probably about 20 minutes away from the church in, in, in an old naval base, Howard Air Force Base. We purchased a piece of property and, and built our home there. So we, we have a, a big buffer, and I like it that way. Uh, I like to have... Uh, that separation between me and the folks. When I come home, it's just Carol and I, it's our time. And, uh, but I try to put myself out there as much as I can for them. I visit their houses. I don't do door-to-door -door visitation any longer. It just didn't produce any fruit. And, uh, well, it did, but it just doesn't work. The, the Jehovah's Witnesses have really tainted that in a bad way, and so I, I don't do that. I, I do referrals. I encourage our folks to evangelize, and I, like Javier, those events with Javier, I just share the gospel with anyone God will allow me to. So, yeah. No. <laughs> it has its own problems, but I'm not, I'm not there. I mean, there's the loud music, and I'm glad I don't live there. But where I live, there's always people breaking into homes and holding people up at gunpoint. And hey, you know, whatever. Someone else, Miriam. You had shared that one of your um, the tender churches, his rental house was taken over by a gang. Yes. Has that been resolved? No, it's not. It's not. Thank you. Uh, Jim Coakley asked me about that. Yeah. Jose. 
one of the newer men has a house in Arehan, which is just another area that was taken over. He was renting it out to a family. Well, the, the gang came in and robbed the family and took over the home, and they're <coughs> occupying the home. And now uh, Jose is trying to figure out how to get them out of there. When I asked him if he was willing or if he was able to get the, the law involved, he says, no, that would be a, a death sentence to whoever would move in. So he's got his hands full, but that's, that's not too big for the Lord. And that's where it has to lay right now. It's in the Lord's hands. Okay. Is there any progress with the paintball bar place? Like I said, no, they, they got all their permits and stuff. Their illegal permits. No, they got their legal permits illegally. So even though they built this place where there should be a road, they have a permit that said they're legal to build it. People were paid off. There's nothing we could do. And so I just pulled out of trying to, uh, there were some neighbors and, and legal entities that were trying to close them down. That didn't work. And so I withdrew out of that. And I just decided to put up a fence to stop people from coming through and put bars on the terrace so that was, we would cut down on, on vandal and that kind of thing. But they're still going. They're still going. Again, that's another issue that's in the Lord's hands. But I just decided to put a fence up so that people weren't cutting through and that they weren't using our, our terrace as a party center, which what was happening. Yes, you had another question. Yeah, Pastor, besides praying, what is the best way for us to help for what you're doing to evangelize to the lost and get them into your church? What's the best way that you could help Brother, I, I think you just need to pray. I mean, it's, that's what we need to do, and, and pray for, for God to raise up men uh, and for the, the, the people to have that burden to evangelize. There are some that really want to evangelize. There's others that probably have never shared the gospel with anybody in their entire life. I would imagine the same is here. Some that have never shared the gospel with anybody their entire life. We need, instead of having a team come out, Pastor, Pastor uh, Steve came out with the team, and they were basically a work and, and encouragement team. Uh, I would never take a, a team like that and go door-to-door -door visitation. First of all, because it needs to be in Spanish. Second of all, that people would have a concept, oh, that church is full of gringos who can't speak English, who can't speak Spanish, and I don't want to give them that impression. It's bad enough they need to listen to me. And I, don't, I don't want to give them that impression. Okay? Pastor Steve, when am I supposed to finish? Uh, whenever you want. We typically dismiss about 7.15, 7.20. 7.20, good. Okay, so I have time. All right, I, I, still, I still want to share something that God has laid on my heart with you guys. So is there one more question? If not, Yes. Support level. Well, it's funny you would ask me. <laughs> we are undersupported. Uh, GFA has never taken a service fee out, but because of, of the way things are, 
they let us know probably about three years ago that they were going to start taking a service, of, service fee out. Uh, that's for the operation of the home office and their needs there. Uh, so we're probably, because of that service fee tacked on to our support level, we're probably under-supported by about $350 right now. It started off, when we started the furlough, we were about $700 under-supported, and that's $700 per month. GFA says, Mark, you should probably come back and, and try and visit some churches. Uh, so I sent out some letters to people, and I was able to get some support through letters, but oftentimes that support is coming from friends. That's not coming from churches. Other than, other than Grace upping our support level, uh, no other churches have done that due to that letter. So uh, you'll notice that in September and October, we won't be here that much. We'll be visiting churches. Uh, so we're about $350 under-supported that would take us to the minimum level. Why do I say the minimum level? Albeit it would be 100%, what happens is over time you lose support. Uh, we were at 100% when we first got to the field and we immediately started losing support just because it happens. People pass away, churches close, uh, and, and there's different philosophies of ministry that the, the missionary doesn't jive with the direction of the church. So either the missionary will drop the church or the church will drop the missionary, that kind of thing. So all that stuff happens. So uh, GFA allows us to go beyond 100% knowing that ev eventually you're going to lose support and bring you down. So that's where we are uh, financially under-supported at about $350 a month. Okay. What I want to share with you this evening is uh, it it's neat for me to come home because when I come home, the Lord always teaches me something new. He always teaches me something new. Uh, one of my prayers has been that I would know my need for Him. I know that I need Him, but I really don't know the depth of my need for Him. And so several... Well, probably about a month ago, I started a, a big-time struggle, an internal struggle, with uh, my heart. And the Lord, being faithful as He is, used His Word to show me that struggle. And that's a struggle that I, I hope to share with you this evening in uh, the victory over the struggle so this message tonight is not going to be anything profoundly theological, but I do pray that it's profoundly thought-provoking, even convicting. It's going to be a simple message, and it's going to be based on four principles. I'm going to lay the groundwork. Okay, number one, it has to be biblical. It's not going to be my opinion. It has to be biblical. If we're going to develop any kind of foundation, if we're going to, going to grow in the transformation of the image of Christ, it's got to be biblical. It can't be based on man's opinion. So that's number one. Keep it biblical. Number two, it's not going to be opinion. Number three, there's no hidden agenda other than God's agenda. Okay? Finally, and probably the most difficult for us 
is to not lean upon our own understanding. So those are the ground rules for receiving this message. Okay? Are you with me? Yes. Let me begin with a question. How is it that in the beginning of our salvation we grow? And, and this would be people in, in like me, that I was 22 years old when I got saved. Okay. Uh, who here has been a Christian two years or less? Raise your hand. Two years or less? One? Just one? Okay. That's cool. Five years or less? Two? Three? Four? Okay. For those folks, and for those folks who are, who are saved maybe as a teen, there's a drastic change when God comes into your life, saves you, and transforms you we begin to establish biblical convictions and practices that nurture spiritual growth in Christ-likeness. Then as we mature, those same standards and practices that we established way back in the beginning seem to become unraveled a little bit and even a bit lowered. So what we maintain for a high standard here in the beginning when, in, when, when, when God set the fire in our heart and we began to grow and we start, through his word, establishing principles and convictions and standards and limits so that we can grow even more. In our maturity, we begin to lower those standards. Now, granted, sometimes we have to, we have to adjust a conviction to make it more biblical because not all convictions are biblically based. We begin to allow things to pass before our eyes that we would never have allowed in those beginning years or tolerated several years earlier. We contemplate an unwholesome thought just a bit longer than before. We participate in conversations that do not edify. We may even entertain some off-color joking or laugh at it. What was clearly biblically wrong before, now in our maturity, is okay, it's not that bad, or we say, that doesn't bother me, that doesn't affect me, because we're mature now. How does that happen? How is it that those standards that we set up to protect us, to govern our lives in a biblical fashion, now aren't necessary? Is there ever, can, can any of you think of any place on the highway where they put up a guardrail because it's a dangerous area, and after the time, well, no one's wrecked here, so let's take down the guardrail. Can anyone think of a spot like that? Panama. Doesn't happen. Someone say Panama? Yeah. It doesn't happen. But yet, we're willing to do that in our lives. And when we take down those guardrails or we lower those guardrails, what happens? Satan slips in. 
Oh, well, that doesn't affect me. How does that happen? Why does that happen? Well, let me suggest one just simple biblical principle. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's why. Do you think that wicked, nasty heart of ours ever rests? Ever does not want to have its own way? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Instead of telling you what the original word means, I decided to read a, a couple different translations that give us the, the flavor of what those words really mean. The NASB says the heart is more deceitful than all else, and it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The ASV says the heart is deceitful above all things and is exceedingly corrupt. Who can know it? The Bible in basic English says the heart is a twisted thing. Not to be searched out by man. Who is able to have knowledge of it? The English Standard Version says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Another version reads, the heart is more deceitful than anything. It's incurable. Who can know it? Now we know, I, I hope you know, that in this passage, the heart, this is, this is not pertaining to this organ that pumps blood because there are no thoughts in this thing. It's pertaining to our mind. Our center, our, our, our control panel, if you want to say. And this thing is despicably wicked and perverse above all things. Now, folks, if we, have a, if we have to list wicked, perverse things, and we start making that list right at the top, the, the worst, biblically speaking, the worst, most despicable, most perverse, most corrupt, most wicked thing is this. Well, okay. You might say, well, what about 2 Corinthians 5.17? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed. Behold, all things have become new. Amen. Yes. We are a new creature in Christ Jesus. Positionally. Positionally. God looks upon us and he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. So we are a new, we have life now, but we didn't have life before. But this thing needs to be transformed. That's why sanctification is a process that God continues to untwist. It's a twisted thing. In Spanish it says it's perverso, it's perverse. It's twisted. God, through his word, untwists it and transforms it. And it's a process. And any time that, that, that you allow the flesh to control you, it goes back to that original bent. 
that song we sing, prone to wonder how I know it or how I, something like that, prone to wonder. We're prone to wonder. When you think about Adam and Eve, after they sinned, after they disobeyed, what they do? They hid from God. Because of that wicked, perverse heart. That high standard of holiness that we develop for ourselves, it's a matter of our will. What do I mean? We decide. When Scripture talks about the, the, the walk according to the Spirit and you will not gratify the lust of the flesh, those are the decisions that we make on a daily basis. We decide, okay, I, I, I'm going to not allow this to cross before my eyes. I'm going to fill my mind with this instead. I'm not going to watch this. I'm going to watch this instead. Or I'm not going to watch anything. I'm not going to maintain that friendship because that, man, that friendship does not edify me. Instead, I'm going to cut that one off and I'm going to start a new friendship. Those are all decisions that we made. God doesn't make those decisions for us. God wants us to make those good decisions, but he doesn't make them for us. Hence the put off, be renewed, put on principle. Real quick, let me read a passage from King David in Psalms. It says, I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. David determined in his heart that he was going to behave himself in a right way with a perfect heart. David determined that he was not going to set any wicked thing before his eyes. He determined that he wouldn't do that. That was a decision that he made. So how is it that we let these things happen, that we start contemplating that thought a little bit longer than before, that we start letting things pass before our eyes that in the beginning of our salvation we would never allow that to happen. How is it that we get involved in those conversations that don't edify anybody? In fact, they're negative, they're destructive. And sometimes we find humor in those off-color jokes. How is that? Because of that wicked heart. Let me just give you a, a few ideas, and, and I got five minutes, but we'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, turn your Bibles with me to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. I'm going to read it, and then I'm just going to pinpoint these things briefly, and then we can be dismissed. And but again, I, I hope this message gives you. Something to meditate about. Okay, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running into mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. That proud look, that's pride. There's no surprise there. God hates pride. The old man loves pride. The old man is very proud. We live in a, we live in a society that's, that's, that's egocentric. I almost said it in Spanish. An egocentric 
society, where it's me. And there's some phrases that go along with that society. Look out for number. Who's number one? Me. I deserve it. That's pride. We're always trying to promote ourselves. Pastor, Pastor Tim made a comment, I don't know if it was last Wednesday or two Wednesdays before, about uh, random thoughts. He says in any given day we have about 30,000 random thoughts. Random, they just come out of nowhere. And I'm looking at those random thoughts. Again, this is what the Lord showed me. Mark, that's pride. Mark, that's pride. Mark, that you're being prideful again. It's always about pride. Why? I took down some of those guardrails. I got to put those bad boys back up. Scripture says a lot about pride. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. That proud look is something that God hates. It's just the opposite of what Paul teaches in Philippians. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Let not every man look on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That's the mindset of the new man. A lying tongue. What's a lie? What's a lie? Someone tell me. Raise your hand and tell me. Yes, Donna. Anything but the truth. Anything but the truth is an exaggeration, well, this, that, that just encompasses everything. Is an exaggeration a lie? You bet it is. Is a half-truth a lie? When we say, I called you 17 times yesterday, when I, what we really meant to say is we called twice, <laughs> but we want to emphasize that we tried calling you two times and you didn't answer. Why can't we just say two times? I called you twice yesterday. I called you 17 times. That's a lie. A lying tongue. When we lie, we do the works of the devil. <coughs> Contemplate that for a moment. When we lie, when we exaggerate, when we tell a half-truth, when we leave out certain details, because we know those details might cause problems, Hey, I said 95% of the truth. That 5% you really don't need to know because, you know, I might get in trouble for that. We're doing the works of the devil. Paul said, wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbors. In Sunday school, we just finished today, Ron Hart just finished the armor of God and the, the helmet of truth, uh, I'm sorry, the, the belt of truth and we, folks, we should be truth tellers. We shouldn't have to say, what's that, what's that phrase? Uh, in all sincerity or, or speaking truthfully, why should we even have to say that? 
that would lead me to believe that sometimes you don't speak truthfully? Right? In all honesty, well, we shouldn't have to say that. We should be truth tellers. Always. Always. Speaking the truth in love. Wherefore, putting, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Okay, that's in the context of the church. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it might minister grace to the hearers. Folks, what we, sh we should build up one another. We should edify one another. We should encourage one another. What we, sh what we say should bring grace to the hearer. But we want to hear the negative stuff. It's juicier. Folks, that's not going to work. I don't believe God takes pleasure in that. We should be truth tellers. We should seek to edify one another. We should seek to build up one another. We should seek to encourage one another. Hands that shed innocent blood. That's literally a murderer. I'm going to make an assumption. <laughs> There's no murderers in here. But we could safely say that hating is likened unto murder. That's what the scripture says. 1 John 3.15, whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. If any man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how could he love God whom he hath not seen? Let's move on. A heart that devises wicked imaginations. This is our thought life. Remember those 30,000 random thoughts? That's the one area in our life, and if you, it's the one area in our life that we can hide from everybody. Right? We can hide it from everybody. What goes on in here? Our thoughts. Only God knows. And for some reason, we think that God's really not considered, not concerned with our thoughts, but He is. But we can think of those perverse, corrupt thoughts. And no one knows, and we can get away with it, we think. Some of us struggle with the scars of our past in our thought life. I got saved when I was 22 years old. I was just a 22-year-old knucklehead in the street, and uh, I got a lot of scars. God can heal those scars God can heal those scars. God wants to heal those scars. But I have to do it God's way. I have to do it God's way. This heart is perverse and wicked enough as it is. I don't need more things that are going to make it even worse. All the more reason why we should guard what we allow through the window of our soul. But we're, folks, but we're not careful. It shouldn't matter what the other person wears, where the other person is. 
It shouldn't matter. I have control of what happens here. I do. And you do. You have control of what happens here. You can choose, choose to look and maybe look a little bit longer than you should, or you can choose to turn away. You choose. You determine. Our minds are perverse and wicked enough as they are, yet we feed them with more wickedness and perversity, and we are left with a very, very nasty thing. Therefore, all the more critical it is to control and wisely govern the input that our wicked heart ingests. In the context of a Christian home, parents will attempt to shelter their children from all those ugly, perverse, and simple things as they grow. They want to help their children have a pure, innocent, and biblical view of things. Most often it's because that parent or those parents have been scarred by what they saw and participated in before salvation. They know what the struggles are of the mind and they want to protect their children from those things. Kids, don't struggle against the limits that your parents have set upon you because they know better than you. When I was raising this guy over here and, and his siblings, we, put, we had strong, <laughs> we had big guardrails up because I've been on the other side of that guardrail. I didn't want this young man to have to struggle with those things. I didn't want my girls to have to struggle with those things. So we set up guardrails. We tried to keep them biblical. I'm sure we failed in some areas, but we tried to keep them biblical. Do that in your own life. Those things that you lowered because you're mature now, that you, you lowered those guardrails, and that junk is now coming in, and I don't need to give you a list of what's going on, but... You know what it is. You know what you tolerate now that you didn't tolerate five years ago. You know, well, I'm, a, I'm mature now. That doesn't bother me. Bother me. Fit the sweet, fit feet that be swift to run into mischief. That's a troublemaker, someone who's just looking for trouble. I don't, I don't have time. A false witness that speaketh lies. That's someone, the difference between the false witness, false witness that speaketh lies and he, a lying tongue, <clears throat> normally a, a, a lying tongue, that just affects me, but a false witness that speaketh lies, that I'm saying something untrue about somebody else to, to, to hurt them and to make me look good. That's a false witness that speaketh lies. God hates that is an abomination to him. Finally, he that soweth discord amongst the brethren. Discord is the opposite of harmony. Discord brings about division. Division is the opposite of unity. Yet the scripture says that we should be endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. If it's not true, don't say it. If it doesn't edify, don't say it. If it doesn't encourage me, don't tell me. We need to look out for the best, the best interest. If each one of us is looking to edify and, and, and encourage and exhort one another, amen. This, this church would be gigantic or there'd be, there'd be tons of, of sister churches, but because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, it's not going to lie down. It's never going to stop. You can hold it in check as you walk in the Spirit, but it's never going to lie down. Like the enemy never sleeps, that wicked, deceitful heart never sleeps. 
So what do we do when we notice that that wicked, perverse heart is starting to govern the way we walk, the way we think, the way we talk, the way we reason, the way we relation with our relationships with other people? We need to make some difficult decisions. We need to right the ship. We have to eliminate or discard some of those things from our lives. It's friends, hard decisions. We need to make some hard decisions. That program, that friendship, that place, that practice, that genre of lit literature, you fill in the blank. Whatever it is that, that now you see that you have problems with this, you need to make a decision. You need to eliminate that from your life. And it's going to be a rough decision. You might not get the support that you hope to get because it might go against the grain. But you know what, folks? I made some of those rough decisions, and I am the better off for it. I feel that I'm walking in victory at this point in those areas because those things were pulling me down. Whatever it is, let it be sifted by the word of God that is quick and powerful. God's word will reveal it for what it is. Amen? God's word is going to show you what it is. If it does not make the cut, you don't need it. You might want it, but you don't need it. And about your want, ask God to change your want. Ask God to change your want. And he will. And this is the confidence that we have in him. If we ask anything according to his word, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatsoever we ask, we know we have the petitions that we ask of him. Ask God to change your want. I hope that was an encouragement to you. I hope you, you, you leave today thinking about this passage, thinking about that deceitful, destructive, perverse heart and the danger it is and ask God to, to show you what you need to do to make those changes and then make them. They'll be difficult, guaranteed. Some of them will be very difficult. Make them and you'll be one step closer to the image of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for allowing us to have this time to... I thank you for allowing me to have this time to share with my family here what you're doing in Panama and what you're doing in my heart. Lord, I trust you to use your word to penetrate all the hearts here tonight, that you would be glorified, that you would show us our sinfulness, show us how much we need you, Lord, and help us to make those difficult decisions. Lord, and where's the, when there's that struggle of desire, change our desire, I ask. In Jesus' name, for your honor and your glory, amen.